On today's episode, don't worry, Tintin is coming to save Africa, but first, he's going to blow the heads off some chimpanzees. Welcome to Gatsy Talks Tintin in the Congo. Tintin is going to the Congo, the jewel of the Belgian colonial empire. Once again, we're given no insight into what his actual assignment is, besides just visiting, positioning Tintin in his early adventures as more of a travel guide than a journalist. Snowy, incorrigible as ever, runs amuck on the ship, running afoul of a shifty stowaway who tries unsuccessfully to drown the pooch. Tintin is greeted as a hero when he eventually arrives in the Congo, presumably having become a celebrity after his previous adventure in the Soviet Union. His exploits in Africa mostly involve killing animals, and throughout the story, Tintin is shown trying to shoot lions, crocodiles, antelopes, monkeys, and elephants, though usually not without some comedic mishaps. He soon finds himself up against the local tribe's witch doctor, who is jealous of the reporter's influence, and joins with the stowaway from earlier, who has his own unexplained vendetta against Tintin. But their attempts to dispose of him fail each time. Eventually, Tintin discovers the stowaway is actually an agent of Chicago mob boss Al Capone, who is trying to control diamond production in the Congo, and believed that Tintin had been sent to expose his plans. The smuggling ring is arrested thanks to Tintin, and the reporter is picked up in a plane, all set to cover a new story emerging in Chicago. Tintin and the Congo first appeared serialized in the pages of Le Petit Vetiem, children's supplement of Le Vetiem Siècle, from the 5th of June 1930, and concluding on the 11th of June of the following year. Hergé had originally wanted to follow up his critique of communist Russia in Land of the Soviets by sending Tintin to the United States next and exploring America's rampant capitalism and gangsterism. However, it was once again Norbert Vallès, editor of Le Vetiem Siècle, and thus ostensibly Hergé's boss, that chose the reporter's next adventure. And as with Land of the Soviets, it would be in service of Le Vetiem's and its editor's conservative nationalist ideology. The misleadingly named Congo Free State had been gifted to Belgian King Leopold II by the great European powers in 1885, as part of the wider colonial pursuit dubbed the Scramble for Africa. This gift was granted under the condition of allowing free trade of the country's natural resources, particularly rubber, and the typical ideological justification of Christianization and humanitarianism. Leopold's pursuit of rubber in the Congo Free State is often regarded as one of the most brutal chapters of European colonial history, with rampant stories of mass murder, enslavement and mutilation of the Congolese, eventually leading the Belgian government to take over administration from the king in 1908, opting for a colonial relationship more typical of European powers of the time, if far from fair by today's standards. Valles was allegedly contacted by the Belgian Minister for Colonies in 1930, who informed Hergé's editor that there was a general lack of enthusiasm for the colonial administration amongst the general public in Belgium. Thus, Tintin the Congo was born from Valles' desire to both justify and promote Belgium's colonial presence in Africa, and Hergé set about researching another nation he had never actually been to. Despite this premise, the political message is less ham-fisted than it was in Land of the Soviets, and it does begin to read more like an adventure than just nationalist propaganda. However, the plot is still paper-thin, with no overarching story besides Tintin evading wild animals and outsmarting his assailant, but the inclusion of the stowaways or recurring antagonists in the story's first segment does suggest an element of foreshadowing absent in his predecessor. 
Similarly, by only revealing his identity as an agent of Al Capone at the story's conclusion, Hershey adds both an element of mystery and sets up his next adventure, and suggests that by this stage the author is thinking further than just his next panel. Having said that, large sections of the story often still read as visual gags, and you can tell Hergé had a lot of fun thinking about the misadventures Tintin could get up to while shooting every living thing in sight, except Snowy. Tintin continues to seek cartoonish solutions to his problems, including skinning a monkey with a pocket knife, creating an enormous slingshot out of rubber cut from two trees, and defeating a leopard by feeding it a sponge and then making it drink water. At least the scene in which he drills a hole in the back of a rhinoceros and drops dynamite inside it has been removed from recent editions. But enough about harmless animal cruelty. Today, Hergé's second Tintin story is infamous for its controversial depiction of the native Congolese, and it continues to raise questions about racism and censorship. From a modern perspective, it certainly raises a few eyebrows. The Congolese are like people from a fairy tale, from their childlike simple-mindedness to their jet-black skin and huge red mouths, and their eclectic blend of both native African and European fashion. They are reminiscent of Florence Kate Upton's Gollywog creatures, which themselves drew upon the aesthetic of blackface minstrel entertainers. Considering the political purposes for which the story was commissioned, Tintin's interactions with the natives play heavily on the old trope of the white man's burden, the belief that Europeans had a moral responsibility to help the cultural, religious, and technological advancement of the indigenous peoples around the world, a theory that conveniently ignores the many benefits European governments stood to gain by conducting these missions, such as the abundance of natural resources and a new market for consumer goods. True to this fashion, Tintin busies himself by assisting the natives whenever possible, nonchalantly demonstrating the positive changes European men like himself can make in the lives of these charming but simple people, without acknowledging the rewards his countrymen continue to reap. Compared to Land of the Soviets, the messaging is actually very subtle, but any discerning reader would conclude that Tintin in the Congo is definitely a pro-colonial story. Hergé would express embarrassment at this depiction of the Congolese later in life. Speaking about the messaging of his earlier stories in 1975, he said, The fact was that I was fed on the prejudices of the bourgeois society in which I moved. It was 1930. I only knew things about these countries that people said at the time. Africans were great big children, thank goodness for them that we were there, etc. And I portrayed these Africans according to such criteria, in this purely paternalistic spirit which existed then in Belgium. There is, of course, merit to this explanation, and it's worth acknowledging the Hergé story is not particularly racist for the time in which it was written. The Congolese depicted are simple, but not savage or contemptible, and need guidance rather than hostility. Written at a time of a rising belief in fascist nationalism and eugenics, this is far from the most extreme racism that could be found at the time. On the other hand, just because your racism is paternalistic rather than hateful, it doesn't mean it isn't racist. Also, while much more extreme theories of race relations were being disseminated at the time, so too were progressive ideas of egalitarianism, human rights, and anti-colonialism. But, as Hergé himself admits, these theories did not readily appear inside his social and intellectual domain, and were thus not reflected in his stories. Unsurprisingly, there have been a number of revisions to this story since it first appeared in 1930. The redrawn and coloured 1946 edition saw the subject of Tintin's lesson to the Congolese children change from your country, Belgium, quote-unquote, to simple mathematics, perhaps a reflection of Hergé's changing cultural attitudes at a time in which the Congo was still actually a Belgian colony. This edition also added detectives Thompson and Thompson to the first panel in an unnamed cameo, retroactively marking the first canonical appearance of these fan-favourite characters in the series. 
1975 edition also saw the removal of the aforementioned rhinoceros dynamite scene, though all other instances of animal slaughter remain mostly unchanged. In one of these two editions, the decision was made to drop all explicit references to the Congo, so that in the current version, Tintin simply travels to Africa, though the title Tintin the Congo remains. Owing to the story's sensitive nature, this was the last in the series to receive a publication in English, with a facsimile of the 1931 black and white edition hitting shelves 60 years later in 1991, and the 1946 coloured edition coming in 2005, though it was wrapped in a red band that warned of potentially sensitive content. There have been various campaigns across Europe and the United States in recent years to either ban the publication of the book, or at least mandate that it not be sold in the children's section of bookstores. Egmont, the current publisher of all English-language Tintin books, ceased publication of the story sometime in late 2014, and has subsequently been left out of their Adventures of Tintin box sets. It is, however, still available as a hardcover from Casterman, complete with a red warning band. Additionally, in 2019, to celebrate the 90th anniversary of Tintin, Moslinart, the managers of the Hergé estate, made a new digital edition available on their Adventures of Tintin mobile app. This new version keeps the original art of the 1931 original, but updates it with a completely new colouring, depicting the Congolese countryside in more realistic brown and yellow shades. The story is also one of only two from the series not adapted into the 1991 animated television series, along with Land of the Soviets. While it's probably not the role of the white guy with the podcast to explain what is and isn't racist or offensive, I think it's important to note, at least in the years initially following the publication of Tintin the Congo, it was quite well received in Africa in general and in the Congo specifically. Uh, in his book, Urge the Man Who Created Tintin, Pierre Asselini cites a survey that was conducted of the Congolese by a, a prominent African magazine, Zaire. The results were edifying. Not only do they consider Tintin part of their cultural heritage, but he was one of their national heroes. After all, he had gone to the Congo when he hadn't even set foot in Spain or Greece or Japan. Free of their colonial complex after a decade of independence, they were ready to enjoy Tintin's adventures without reservation. Now, it's important to know that survey was conducted in 1970 following the colour reissue of Tintin the Congo for the first time. And I think it's fair to say that uh, attitudes towards Tintin the Congo may have changed dramatically in those years since then. And to be on the safe side of that, a lot of reissues of the Tintin stories will forego Tintin the Congo, and they'll sometimes forego Tintin the Land of the Soviets as well. This, for example, is quite an old uh, three-in-one edition of the Tintin stories, things published 2003. And you can see this is volume one here, and it starts with Tintin America. It starts with the third story in the Tintin series, because I imagine a lot of publishers are like, they don't want the hassle of Tintin the Congo, and they don't really need to include Tintin in the land of the Soviets because it's so different. For myself, I would hate to see Tintin the Congo disappear, because I'm obviously a fan of Tintin. If that means not making it available in the children's section, for example, I think that's a compromise. I'm, I'm more than willing to make. Um, but I think it is important that, that children of all backgrounds and all ethnicities come to understand, I guess, the depictions in books like Tintin the Congo with an understanding that was part of the social uh, attitudes of the time. I think it's, it's good for media literacy in general to understand how these stereotypes have changed over time and, and why they were held and why they're no longer held. Regardless, Tintin the Congo remains the most controversial story in the Tintin canon. From a story perspective, it, it makes some improvements in Tintin the Land of the Soviets. I think by actually introducing the antagonist at the very start and then bringing him back at the end, and not only that, using him to set up the next Tintin story. I think it's definitely a step forward in plot progression, but it's only a small step. We're still not getting large 
paced out stories um, that revolve around anything more than people wanting to do Tintin in because they're bad and he is good. But we will see another step next week when we explore Tintin in America. Urge finally gets to explore America and the Native Americans that fascinated him so much. If you are enjoying these, I would love it if you subscribed on your podcast app of choice. If you want to follow me on Instagram, it's tintin.podcast. Post a lot of uh, the related trivia facts, things that appear in the reviews, otherwise things that I couldn't fit in. It's really meant to be just sort of like a community for, for Tintin fans. Also, you can go on the website, which is latterature.com slash Tintin, L-A-T-T-E-R-A-T-U-R-E dot com slash Tintin to explore even more of these these sources and these uh, behind the scenes images. In the meantime though, thank you so much for watching Tintin Heads. What is my sign off I usually do? What did I do last week? Thanks for listening Tintin Heads. I will see you next time. Gotta work on that. <laughs>